Good morning and welcome. Uh, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 7 this morning. And while you're turning there, uh, I have a confession to make. Uh, I've been hiding this for a long time. And, and I need to come out of the closet. And that is that I am a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Uh, I belong to the Green Bleeding Nation. It's been a long time. Because I grew up in Philadelphia, you guys know that. And the last time we won anything big like that was the championship in 1960. So, would you pray for the Eagles today? <laughs> They're going to need a miracle. And, uh, you know, their, their quarterback, Nick Foles, I don't know if you know this, but he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And when they won the championship two weeks ago, both times in front of the camera, he gave the glory to the Lord. And, uh, and I want to see that happen today, again. <laughs> All right. Uh, chapter 7, and let's read it here. I'll read, you can follow. And John writes, After these things I saw four angels uh, standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice, uh, to the four angels and to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And saying, do not harm the earth and the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, a hundred and forty-four thousand. Of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of Judah, I'm just going to go through the names of those that were sealed, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, uh, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin, who were all sealed. And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, and blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God, and, for, and forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And so he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before <coughs> excuse me, the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them, and they shall neither hunger uh, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you today, and we thank you, Lord, that you are on your throne. 
Lord, sometimes the world seems crazy. Sometimes it's just so chaotic. And yet compared to what it will be, this is nothing. And so we thank you for, we have a blessed hope of heaven. Lord, thank you for the protection we have. Thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit that you have given into our hearts and our lives. And Father, I pray as we consider this seventh chapter of Revelation, that Lord, you would speak into our hearts, into our lives. We thank you that you're the God who comes and comforts us. You're the God who wipes away every tear. And Lord, we pray this morning, you see our lives, you know our hearts. Lord, you see the things that are going on in our lives and how we pray. Lord, as we look to you this morning, as we worship you, and now we worship you by receiving your word into our hearts and lives, Lord, may your word wonderfully encourage. May it strengthen us. May it give us hope and help. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we entitled our message this morning, The Gospel Back in Jewish Hands, because that's what we see here. Uh, as we come to this point here in the, in the tribulation, and, uh, you know, as uh, you look back at the first century, and the gospel was placed into the hands of a few Jewish believers, and, of course, with the, the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, we see how God wonderfully used them. But we know, uh, as we look at the gospel record, that uh, as far as the, the, the nation Israel, that the gospel was basically rejected. Not by every Jew, but in a national sense it was. Um, uh, and, and of course, there was those that, you know, a, a few that received that, and they were faithful uh, to pass on uh, that baton, so to speak, uh, the good news, the truth, to, to you and I. Because for these last 2,000 years, um, you know, after you have that initial, you know, the, the early church was primarily Jewish, when you think about it. Uh, and when you look at uh, the work of the Holy Spirit prompting them, uh, raising up, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul as the Apostle of the Gentiles, um, putting that message uh, and, and directing, you know, those Gentiles to Peter's house um, and uh, for, you know, for the sake of Cornelius and so forth. And then we see the gospel go forth there. And so primarily over, over these last uh, two millennia, the gospel is going to us. But uh, we see now, and of course there's been a few Jews, you know, here and there. As a matter of fact, uh, if you were at the Prophecy Conference last week, um, you, uh, uh, you, you were privileged to uh, hear the teaching of Jonathan Bernice. Uh, but when we look at the, the you know, compared to the, the Gentile church today, the, the Messianic Jewish movement is very, very small. Uh, but at this particular time, the gospel now is going to go back you know, into Jewish hands. And that's what we see here when we see this 144,000. You know, I think that the, the Gentile world uh, unknowingly, uh, unwittingly does not realize that we owe a tremendous debt to the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that. Paul reminds us that over in Romans 15. He tells us that, you know, um, uh, that basically, you know, we owe it, we, you know, we owe a debt to them. Uh, we should be praying for Jewish conversion. We need to be praying. You know, when you pray uh, so often as maybe you go, you read through the Psalms and you read that prayer, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's a messianic prayer. The peace of Jerusalem is for the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, to come back and to establish peace, you know, not only in that place, but that's going to be the headquarters. Folks, I want to tell you what, it's not going to be Washington, D.C. It's not going to be London, Paris, or Moscow. It's going to be Jerusalem. That's going to be uh, the seat of power on the millennial earth 
uh, when the Lord and Savior uh, returns. Now, also, too, as we, you know, we realize, you know, I think when you come to Christ, he interestingly gives you a love for the Jewish people. Uh, I've heard that testimony so many times. Um, I, I've experienced it in my own particular life. Uh, and yet we find that the Gentile world so often outside of the church uh, oftentimes believe, you know, that the Jew is the problem. And, and the fact of the matter is uh, the nations of the world have been blessed because God has scattered his people. And uh, we find that, that incredible promise, you know, over in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, uh, that through Abraham that he would bless all the nations. And, of course, that's a reference to Jesus Christ. That's a reference to the gospel. Um, but also, too, you know, when we were in Genesis, um, we were talking about all the accomplishments of uh, the Jewish people over the course of history, as far as known history, as much as we know. Uh, when you think about it, they comprise one half of one percent, a very small population. But you find that wherever, wherever you know, God has you know, scattered his people, that he has, even, even, it's interesting, even in their disobedience, that God has blessed them. And, and, and you, you think about the, the, the technology um, and the ability that God has given the Jews and how that has, in a sense, filtered down to affect the community and the cultures around them. Uh, there was an interesting story uh, that comes out of New York City many years ago uh, during the Great Depression. And there, there was a mayor there, uh, very well known, uh, Fiorello LaGuardia. As a matter of fact, you know the airport that's named after him. Well, he was a little Italian guy and uh, uh, stood about five foot two and used to wear a fedora and wear, wear a carnation, and that's why they called him the Little Flower. A very kindly, gracious kind of man, uh, very well loved by the city. But in 1936, um, Nazi Germany was sending a diplomat to the, to, the, to the states, and he was going to come to New York City and do some diplomatic stuff. Uh, there was very strong uh, anti-Nazi uh, sentiment in the city. Uh, as far as uh, LaGuardia was concerned, uh, it, it was, you know, Nazism was very repulsive to him. And so he felt like he was sort of in a conundrum. He didn't know what to do. Uh, he had to protect this guy, um, even though he disagreed, you know, with uh, that kind of philosophy. And, and even before they had done some of the most horrible things, even at that point, um, you know, he was, you know, many people in the world were, dis were, in, were in disagreement uh, with that. Uh, so he came, with, came up with a ge uh, just a genius idea. Uh, he assigned 12 New York City policemen to be his escort and to protect him because that was a concern. Someone would, you know, someone would maybe hurt him or assassinate him or attack him. So he assigned 12 uh, New York City policemen to be his attache and his, and his, gu and his guides. And uh, the irony of it was they were Jews. And uh, don't you love, I think God has a sense of humor. And, uh, but, but it's kind of interesting in a sense when you think about the fact that, that God has used the Jewish people to bless, you know, um, the world in many different ways and in the foremost way through our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this uh, beginning here and uh, after these things, I saw four angels, John says, standing at the four corners of the earth. Uh, they're holding back the four winds of the earth uh, that it should not blow on the earth or on the sea. Now, these are the four basic compass points. Uh, these are not to indicate that there's corners, actually. Um, 
just sort of a metaphor, you could say. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting to me today that uh, there's been a resurgence of the flat earth theory. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I've had people argue with me about it. And I'm convinced if someone can, can accept a theory like that, you can talk anybody into anything. I mean, we just had the eclipse. The eclipse proves, okay? The earth is spherical. It's a circle. I even took a, the, the, the one, you know, young man to the scripture uh, in Isaiah where it's, it says that he, the Lord, sits upon the circle of the earth, but that wasn't good enough for him. And, um, you, know, it is, it is, you know, that's why, you know, the Bible tells us um, that as we move closer to the end, there's going to be a spirit of deception poured out on people. And, you know, people, it's interesting, if you don't have the, the, the Holy Spirit and the truth, you know, the truth of the Word of God in your heart and life, you can fall prey to anything. And that's why it's so important, you know, that we, that we continue to be students of the Word of God, uh, that, that, you know, that we're yielding and obeying the Holy Spirit and, and listening to His guidance and direction, you know, in our lives and in our hearts. Now, these angels here are basically holding back the, 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 simply the dynamic wind system that circulates these currents and these activities basically around the world. We have what is called the hydrologic cycle, which is basically all, you know, when you think about the earth is, what, three quarters, basically roughly three quarters of it, or, or should we say two-thirds, something like that, of water upon the face of the earth. So you have this giant uh, uh, evaporation system. But if you didn't have winds to basically create, uh, uh, as the clouds were created, to blow them inland, you would basically have uh, a famine. There would not be any rain. Uh, now, sometimes we might like that in Rochester, but uh, we wouldn't like it for too long of a period of time. Uh, so here you have these angels that are basically holding back uh, this whole system from taking place. Um, and no doubt God is going to use this. And maybe perhaps um, this relates to the, the famines that we were talking about. Because remember when we looked at chapter 6, we were looking at basically a flyover. Uh, we were looking at, uh, you know, the, the, the entire... Um, period of the tribulation condensed as we as we as it opened up in chapter six we just saw basically um you know the the uh what's the word the synopsis if you will in chapter six of the whole thing now we get into some of the details here as we get into chapter seven and uh and i and I, one of the things i shared with you last week which i think is very very critical and very important and perhaps uh, you were here or maybe you were not here uh, to get the sequential breakdown of the chapters. If you were not here, I'll give them to you real quickly. Because I think this is important to understand the sequential timeline and chapters, how the chapters break down in the timeline of Revelation. And uh, the first half of the tribulation, tribulation is chapters 6 through 9 and chapter 17. Because sometimes you get a flashback, okay? So chapter 17 is one of those, okay? So the first half of the tribulation is chapters 6 through 9, and chapter 17. The midpoint of the tribulation is chapters 9 through 14. You should write this down. This is very important to understanding, um, getting an overview of the book of Revelation. Midpoint, chapters 10 through 14. The second half is chapters 15, 16, and chapter 18. So when you get into chapter 19, uh, basically, you have the Lord returning at that particular point. But I think it's important to just have a, uh, a basic operational understanding of where the chapters fall in that whole sequential timeline uh, kind of a thing. 
Now, they're commanded here in verse 3 to wait until this special group of people are selected. And we're told here that this 144,000, uh, we're told here, let me just read it to you. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So these, uh, the, these servants here, these 144,000 are going to be sealed in their forehead. Now, what is a seal? A seal basically, uh, if you, you know, take the, the example from, you know, from antiquity, uh, it's basically a, a sign, a indication of ownership. Uh, if you owned anything, you would have your signet, you would have your seal, you would pour hot wax on it, uh, and, you, you know, whatever your family seal, your coat of arms, whatever, uh, you would seal that to indicate your ownership. Um, you know, it's interesting when you look at uh, much of the medieval art, um, when it comes to religious art, they would put oftentimes on the head of the believers a halo. And what they're trying to basically describe there, signify, is that the seal. And we don't know exactly what it looks like, but that's how the artist of old basically tried to signify it. Uh, so if that is true, um, you know, each one of us here this morning uh, have a halo uh, on them. Uh, we were sealed, we're sealed with that wonderful seal uh, of, of, of basically protection. And God is simply saying by that, you know what, you belong to me. You know, I think when Satan, and, you know, Satan is a spiritual being, and, and there's the, the demonic agencies. But I want to tell you what, they know who belongs to Jesus Christ. And they know who they can pick on. They know who they can take advantage of. Because when you belong to Jesus Christ, you have that seal. The Bible tells us everyone is sealed with a seal. That, that, you, that you're protected, that you're sealed. And thank God for that, how vulnerable we would be. You know, how open we would be, you know, to, and, 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 you know, you look at your life, and, of course, you can compare what you were like before Christ and uh, what, what, you know, what happened to your life after you met Christ. And I look at my own particular life, and I think, wow, thank you, Jesus. Um, I think of some of the, the foolish things, uh, some of the, the things that I believe, some of the things I got sucked into, uh, some of the tendencies and proclivities that, that I didn't really, you know, when you think about um, this age of, of compulsion and addictions, uh, the psychoanalysts have discovered we've got so many different types of compulsive, addictive behaviors out there. The latest one is the digital addiction. And um, uh, do you know anybody's like that? <laughs> They're all around us. All you have to do is just, you know, walk into, uh, you know, some place of public and everybody's, you know, what I find is interesting sometimes is you'll see a family out having dinner and everybody's, you know, nobody's talking to one another. Everybody's, you know, on their phone. And, uh, you know, uh, we, sometimes we pray, pay a price for this uh, wonderful technology uh, that we have. And, uh, but the fact is that we are sealed. We, we, we have a wonderful, awesome uh, protection of God that's stamped in a sense spiritually upon our life. And also too, this seal represents, it's represented by the Holy Spirit. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter one. Paul speaks about it there when he says this. He says uh, in Ephesians one, verse 11, then over to verse 13, he says, in him also, that is in Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the purpose, or to the counsel, rather, of his will. 
So again, we have this rich inheritance. Paul refers it also to it as riches. And it's not necessary. He's not talking about, yes, we're, we, as Americans, we're, we are blessed like no other nation. But really what the Bible's speaking about here is the spiritual inheritance, the, the many blessings that we have. In other words, here's one of the greatest blessings that, that, that Christians have, but I don't think they're fully aware of it. It's a tremendous blessing. It's an incredible privilege. And what I'm talking about is access to the throne of God through prayer. That you can come to the throne of God and you can ask God Almighty to save somebody, to work in their life. To make impact in situations that are way beyond anything that we could ever do. We have a great inheritance. But look what, look what Paul says in verse 13. In him... You also trusted, and that is in Christ, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, and that's the key, you heard it, you believed, you put your faith in Christ, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and look what he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchase, purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You know what in this life, folks? There's a lot of things we can lose. You ever lose a lot of money? Well, we've all, I guess that's kind of an uh, interesting question. Depends on what you consider a lot of money. That's why I don't like gambling. I'd hate to lose five hours gambling. It's just, uh, just not my thing, not my temptation. But you know, you can lose a lot of things in this life. You can, lose, uh, your, you can lose your fellowship with God. You don't lose relationship. You can lose fellowship. Sin can do that. You can lose your passion for God. And I think that's happened, isn't it, to all of us at one time or another? You know, the, the, the candle, the flame, the, the fire in your heart tends to go out. You can lose your passion for God. And you know what? Sadly enough, people, you can lose your purity. You can regain it, but you can lose it. You know what also you can lose, and Paul, the, the Scripture reminds us a number of times, you can lose your rewards. As you've invested your life in serving the Lord, you can lose your rewards. That, that, that's why the Bible warns us about that. Be, be careful, the Scripture says, that you don't lose your rewards. You know what? You can lose your reputation. I've seen it happen. I've known pastor friends, had a good reputation, lost it. You can even lose your life. That can even happen to a believer because of sin. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But there's one thing that you cannot lose, and praise God, it's the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you lost your cell phone this week? Have you lost your keys? For a while anyway, right? Well, thank God you can't lose the Holy Spirit. He's, he's got you. He's got his stamp on your life. If you have believed, if you have committed your life uh, to him. Now, looking at verse 4, now remember the, the, the primary objective of this tribulation, this time period, is a twofold thing. First of all, it's to reject those uh, or to judge, rather, those who have rejected the atonement of Jesus Christ. Those that have rejected, that's why this age of grace keeps going on. 
You know, God is so merciful and God is so faithful. Isn't it amazing that this time of welcome, open doors to whosoever come in, whosoever believes will be saved, it's been going on now for over 2,000 years. Now compare that with only seven years of judgment. Is not God merciful? Is he not a gracious and loving and kind father? He, he, has, he has specifically limited that period to seven years where we've had over 2,000 years and we don't know exactly when the rapture is going to happen and when this age of grace is going to be over. And it continues to go on. That's why we need to be active, folks. Uh, be, be careful that you don't just get an attitude where you're just kind of waiting to die or waiting for the rapture. We got business to do. We, we want to see folks get saved to come into the kingdom. And secondly, and, th and more importantly, as far as these two purposes for this particular time period, is to fulfill his promises and, his, and to rescue the nation of Israel. You see, God has made promises and covenants and commitments. Now, Paul tells us, and if you want to understand what's really going on with the, with the Jew, because sometimes there's been... Um, a, a corrupt kind of theology out there that, that God has sort of finished with the Jew. He just sort of swept them off, you know, into the wing somewhere. Uh, and now uh, everything is the church. See, God's blessing has come to the church, but it's come through the Jew. And Paul tells us in, and that's why it's important that you understand Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans chapter 9 is Israel past. Romans chapter 10. Israel present. Romans chapter 11, Israel future. All three tenses there, past, present, and future. But Paul reminds us there that God is not finished with the Jew. He has a purpose, he has a design, and he's presently working it out. That's why it's interesting as we consider, <laughs> you know, the world is, that the attention of the world is focused on this little nation that's probably not even as big as New Jersey. I think it's about as big as Lake Erie. And yet it's become the focal point of the world. You know, there was a story uh, about Harry Truman. Um, he was president when I was born. And interesting how he was the uh, vice president of uh, FDR. And FDR never let him into the meetings. It was kind of, it was, it was interesting. They, he considered, you know, FDR was, you know, highbrow from New York kind of thing. And Harry Truman was just this, this backwoods guy from Independence, Missouri. But, you know, Harry Truman knew the Lord. He, he knew the Lord. He's the only president that, as an inauguration, he bent over and kissed the Bible. And, and FDR never let him in any of the, any of the important meetings. And, and we know FDR died before the war ended, right toward the end of the war. And, uh, and, uh, and, and Truman didn't, he had no idea of really what to do as far as what was going on in the world scene. But you know what? Harry Truman had the Lord. And I'll tell you, when you got the Lord, man, you got the package. When you got him, you got everything. And there's a little story uh, that he had to make... You know, as he was a president that, that, that ended the war there, and we know how that took place, and then on in to around 1950, 51, 
uh, the Korean War and so forth, but he had to make some decisions in the late 1940s regarding the nation of Israel. And these were critical decisions. These were important decisions. And uh, I just read this a couple days ago, and uh, <clears throat> a little devotional piece, but it's about Truman. It says, for a hundred years before the establishment of the modern state of Israel, Christians worked alongside Jews in advancing Zionism. But nothing created more sympathy for the rebirth of the Jewish nation than the reports emerging from, from World War II about the Holocaust. And President Harry Truman, aware of impending Arab, the Arab-Israeli conflict, because there was as soon as, soon as they were um, announced a, a nation by the United Nations, they were in war the next day for their survival. He was reluctant to recognize the new Jewish state because that, that was what it needed to take place. The other nations had to recognize and, and, and lend some kind of support to this you know, fledgling Jewish nation or else they would, they would perish. And so on May 12, 1948, several advisors gathered with him to discuss the issue. And one of the men who were there was the famous uh, George C. Marshall, uh, who was the... Uh, um, I can't think of the word. Uh, he was the, the, the chief uh, uh, army guy, uh, chief of staff of the army, um, even over Dwight D. Eisenhower and all that. And it says this, that uh, Marshall was there, but he was against recognizing Israel as a state, as a nation. But to Marshall's dismay, Clark Clifford, Truman's political advisor, urged the president to recognize Israel at once. Quote, I don't even know why Clifford is here, Marshall grumbled. This is not a political meeting. He is here, Truman said, because I've asked him. Clifford made his case calmly and persuasively. He reminded the men of the six million Jews murdered by the Nazis and of the survivors that had nowhere to go. A separate Jewish state was inevitable. And Clifford said, and then he quoted Deuteronomy 1.8, where it says, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. End of quote. Marshall became so angry that he threatened to vote against Truman in the next election. And so bringing the meeting to an icy close, but two days later, the nation of Israel was born, President Harry Truman became the first head of state to afford it official recognition. Later, when Israel's chief rabbi, Isaac Herzog, visited the White House, he told Truman this, quote, God put you in your mother's womb so that you would be an instrument to bring the rebirth of Israel after 2,000 years. <laughs> Don't you love that? And I think that's true. I think God, interestingly, put him, and you'll find that. You'll find that in so many different situations that God puts key people as it relates to his people, as it relates to his purpose. I wonder how many times that, uh, you know, he's taken our lives and he's put us into a situation to witness and to share our faith and to make an impact into the lives of other, of other people. Somebody who, who was listening to that rabbi said this, I thought he was overdoing things, said an observer 
But when I looked over at the president, tears were running down his cheeks. So here we have this 144,000 selected uh, out of Israel, out of every tribe. And I think this is God's way of showing the world that Israel now commands center stage of all the world events. And these are the ones now that become the, and I remember many years ago my pastor saying, these were like 144,000 Billy Grahams, or Greg Lorries, or Luis Palau, great evangelists, those that are taking the gospel and preaching the gospel and impacting. You know, over in, uh, Paul explains it, and I want to just read you a few verses from Romans 11, when Paul is speaking here about the future of Israel, and it's important for us to know that. Um, I, I'm thankful that we're in a group of believers that has always had an endearing love for Israel. I was, Margie and I were sitting at the table with uh, Jonathan Bernice uh, last week at the conference. We just came in and sat down, and uh, he happened to be sitting there, and we, uh, we, had, we had lunch together, or dinner together. And, uh, and he's pretty much in full-time Jewish ministry, Jewish messianic ministry. And, um, that, that's his heart, and that's where God's called him to be. And uh, he, he, he just made something interesting. It wasn't a solicited remark uh, on, on our part, but he was talking about how he says, you know, when I go into a Calvary chapel, there, there's such an awareness of Israel. And, and I'm thankful for that heritage. I, I'm thankful because it's, it's important. It, it's absolutely vital. Um, you, know, you know, how we treat the Jew, how we look at the Jew. And we, we realize that, that we're a part of the heritage. You know, Paul tells us that they're the root. We're the grafted in tree. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever have a, uh, a dwarf tree? dwarf fruit tree in your backyard and you go down to the root and there's this big thing there where they took one tree and they grafted it into another tree and it's just almost like a wound it's almost like a wound it's a bulge uh, at, at, the, at the base of one of these dwarf trees or a semi-dwarf fruit tree and, and, and Paul explains that basically that's what's happened to us uh, you know we've been grafted into this root um, and, and so we have a tremendous debt uh, and, you know, sometimes it uh, might even be an interesting thing uh, to consider maybe uh, if you have uh, maybe some Jewish people that you work with or whatever uh, to go up and just say, you know, I thank you. I, I thank you for the, the heritage that you have, that you have handed down uh, to me as a Christian. Uh, they may look at you like you have three eyes, and uh, that's okay because uh, what we're looking for is an opportunity to witness, uh, basically. But we can do it in a, in a way like that. I think that uh, perhaps will not, you know, be offensive. And uh, perhaps it might open up a conversation. But here's what Paul says about the Jews. Uh, Romans 11, 1 through 5, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Uh, and do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? We know the story of Elijah. Uh, when he was in a situation where the nation turned against, uh, you know, against the Lord and all the idolatry, and here he is down in this cave in Sinai, 
And the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I, only I am left. And the Lord has to remind him, well, Elijah, I got seven more thousand in the nation that have not bowed their knee to Baal. And the point is that, you know what? God has always got his remnant. God's always got his people. God is so faithful. Aren't you thankful that you, and I've, I've said this before, and this is what I want uh, on my gravestone, which I hope I don't have one. I'm, I'm, I'm making uh, preemptory uh, plans for the rapture, but if, if, if that doesn't happen, I'd like this on my gravestone. He kept me. He kept me. There's no boast on my part. It's that he has kept me. And you know, he's doing that for you. He's doing that for you. He's sustaining you. He's watching over you, providing for you, protecting you. Now, Paul goes on in verse, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is it verse 11? No, it's not verse 11. It's verse 25, verse 26 of chapter 11. He says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, they're just blind for a period of time. Oh, yes, it's been 2,000 years. But nationally speaking, they're blind, even though over this 2,000 years, God's still saving Jews. But nationally speaking, the blindness has happened in part until... The fullness of Gentile comes in. And folks, when that happens, that's the rapture. When that happens, the church age is over. And all of a sudden, at that point, all the focus of God turns back to the Jewish people to restore them as a nation once again. And he goes on to say, so all Israel will be saved uh, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now he says here, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for our sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the Father. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Amen? Because that applies to you as well as it does to the Jew. That is, God has called you, you know what? It's irrevocable. He's called you. He has saved you. No matter what you have to navigate through, God is faithful. The gifts and the callings of God, as the old King James says, without repentance. In other words, God does not change his mind about it. And that's something to hoot about, I'll tell you. Now, one of the things that we saw here in that list, or didn't see, rather, was who's missing? Dan. Dan the man. Dan's missing. Also, too, Ephraim is missing. Uh, but we know that Ephraim is the son of Joseph. So, so in Joseph and Manasseh, basically, um, Ephraim is there. But Dan is not uh, uh, on this particular list, and there's some uh, different explanations for that. Um, um, many believe because he was instrumental in leading the nation in the north into idolatry. And if some of us are going to Israel in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll go up to tell Dan, um, uh, you know, Dan's tribal portion, and we'll see an ancient altar from thousands of years ago. 
and we'll probably have a Bible study there. Um, but at other times, in other places, different tribes are not included. But we find that when you get over to Ezekiel 48, Dan is included in that list, and at that particular time, Levi is left out. And uh, here's what Ar Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a, a, um, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, um, I respect him uh, as a theologian and a commentator. He basically says that the Holy Spirit is always keeping the symmetry of the 12. Uh, so we see that all the time because 12 is a very important, significant number. Just like seven is, 12 is also a number, the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes. And so we find that the Holy Spirit, in order to keep that symmetry of the 12, uh, at one time or another, will leave one of the tribes out, but then they'll be included in another uh, particular list. Now, these 144,000, they're all sealed for service, and they preach. But here are their results in verse 9. A great multitude. John looks, he says, I see a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, uh, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white, white robes uh, and with palm branches in their hands. And remember on the original day of Palm Sunday when Jesus was coming in, it was a day of rejection. Remember his disciples were throw, they're throwing down the palm branches and their clothes and all that, and they're saying, Hosanna, uh, which basically uh, means save now uh, when, you, when you go and... Uh, they're quoting basically Psalm 118. They're saying, save now. In other words, they're wanting him to do his messianic work uh, and bring in the kingdom. Because that, that was basically why, from the, from the leadership, why he was rejected. Because he didn't bring in the political kingdom. He was bringing a, not a national salvation. He was bringing a personal salvation. And that's why the nation rejected him. You know, there's an interesting messianic mindset in politics, even for the unbeliever, because we're always looking for somebody, some person to deliver us. And you know what? There's no political answer, folks. There's no political answer. Yeah, we want to pray. We pray for every president. Congress, the, the, the Senate, the Supreme Court, we want to pray for them that, that we might live in a peaceful place. But I want to tell you what, at the end of the day, and we've got probably one of the best political systems that there ever has been. And I think it's because of the fact that there are believers in this nation and God's mercy and blessings on this nation. It isn't just capitalism. It, it isn't just democracy. That, that's why so often people are looking for, you know, they, they get so, you know, they get so ginned up and so worked up. And so, you know, this anger that we see, this angst in, in the different political parties. It's not going to be any Democrats in heaven. Or Republicans. <laughs> that's all going to be done away with. That's why, you know what, we need to, here's how God changes a community, changes a nation, one heart at a time. One heart at a time. And be careful, be careful. You don't get too immersed in politics. It, it, it'll, it'll, it'll get you angry and, and frustrated and, and, and bitter. And you'll find yourself talking to the TV. 
But this is a day of acceptance. These palm branches, a day of acceptance. <laughs> and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Man, salvation is given only one, under one name and one banner. Remember Paul said, or Peter rather, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 4 and he's behind that august religious body, the Sanhedrin, and they're trying to tell him, hey, say no more in the name of Jesus. Isn't it interesting? You can say any name. Buddha, Muhammad. But when you say the name of Jesus, all of a sudden, you got everybody's attention. Because there's only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved. There's power in the name of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's, he's made that so. It's, a kind, it's kind of the name that separates the sheep from the goats. <laughs> it's a name that has power. Always remember that story that Romanian pastor uh, was talking to a, a policewoman, communist policewoman. And he began to talk to her. And it's amazing, isn't it, how many people in our world today have not, they don't know the name of Jesus. Mar my wife, used, Margie, used to drive up a school bus. And she, whenever she got a chance, she talked to the kids about Jesus. And she used to tell me how many times the kids said, who's Jesus? Do I know him? Who's Jesus? But he's talking to this Romanian woman police officer. And she says, I've never heard that name. But I instantly, I love it. And he led her to Christ. <laughs> never underestimate that beautiful name. And so the, <clears throat> verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne, the elders, the creatures, uh, living creatures, that is, the, they're, they're uh, also angels as well, seraphim, cherub, cherubim. And their faces before the throne, and they worship God. Man, the earth is an absolute chaos, but you know what? Praise is always appropriate. I was just reading this week in one of the uh, uh, poetical books, I think it was Psalm 119, how the author was saying seven, seven times a day, I praise the Lord. We need to do that. It's kind, of, it's kind of one of those things where it just gets the compass needle lined up in our heart, in our spirit. And, you know, praise is so, so absolutely critical and so important that, that Jesus said to the woman at the well that the Father is seeking those to worship him. Now, we put a, we put a great emphasis on service. But, you know, service is secondary to worship. You know that? I'm not trying to denigrate it in any way. And an example of it is with Jesus, with Martha and Mary. Martha is surfing, and, and, and she comes to Jesus. And she starts complaining about Mary because Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping. And Jesus, said, Jesus has to correct Martha and say to her, Martha, you're, you're cumbered about with much serving. But, but Mary has chosen the needful part, the good part. 
So worship is, is critical. Worship is important. I'll tell you what, it's going to take up a good portion of eternity. I, I realize some people have a problem with that, with, with worship. And, and I don't mean this in a negative kind of way. I think some people, it's like, I, I do really, you know, I, 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 I feel like I really can't enter in, I can't connect, and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and you know what? You've got to break through. You, you, you got to get to a point and a place where your spirit is drawing life from him. I think that's why, I think that's why a lot of people don't like to pray because prayer is a part of worship. I think sometimes when folks have trouble, you know, singing you know, the words, I think, I think it's, it's a worship issue. Not that I don't know the words or I feel uncomfortable singing. I, I think it's just a worship issue. And, and if maybe you struggle with that, you need to, you, that you need to break through. Because once you break through, you'll realize what it does for you. It, it feeds your spirit. It, it strengthens you. It orders your thinking. It's, it's a, there's a dynamic, even as I try to explain it, there's a dynamic that takes place that when we enter into worship of him, that it's transformational. It'll change you. And that's why, we, that's why we emphasize it in our services. And any time we get together in this church, we have a few songs, a few worship songs. And isn't it interesting? Of all the religions in the world, Christianity is the singing religion. And we're not just singing, we're worshiping. We're, we're adoring him. We're honoring him. And it's a blessing. It's a privilege to be able to do that. So here's the question about this particular group here. Who are these? Verse 13, arrayed in white robes. Where do they come from? The answer is in verse 14. Sir, you know, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. In other words, they have died for their faith, for their testimony uh, during this period. And now their eternal privilege is to have close and personal relationship and service with the Lord. You know, one of the things that we pray uh, before we come out um, with the worship team and whoever else comes into the office there, anybody that's serving today, we always say, Lord, thank you for the privilege. Man, it, it, it's a privilege. It's an honor. It's a joy to be able to serve him in any and every capacity. Find that, find that niche where the Lord wants you to, to plug in. It will enrich your life. It will bless your life. And, and I remember as a new believer thinking, I can't do anything. <laughs> I don't know what to do. And so I just started doing things. And before you know it, one thing led to the other. One door, one door opened, another opened, and another, and another, and another. And that's the way it's been in my life for all these years. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. This is the millennial temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger nor, uh, anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them anymore, thinking about all the suffering 
that they've endured. And that's true, I think, of anyone relative to the sufferings. You know, Paul said that the sufferings of this life are not compared to the glory that will be revealed to us and in us. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, there's a lot of things in this life that can hurt us. And you know, bring tears to our eyes. Have you ever had a mom? It's usually a mom. Maybe it might be your dad when you've been crying. And they come alongside you and they hug you. Wipe away your tears. Very loving, very kind, very personal. That's the kind of God we have. It's the kind of Lord we have. And sometimes you'll find that he'll put that in your heart. Come alongside someone just to meet with him, encourage them and comfort them. I was thinking... And Terry, we're praying for your mom. Many of you remember Edith DeVries, who was with us for years, probably 10, 15 years, I would imagine, something like that. Well, uh, Edith is, is in hospice care. She's very soon to trans transition over. Many of us have been praying for her all weekend. How old is she? 90, 92. Just praying for a glorious entry. And after 92 years, you know, you have a lot of, a lot of scars, a lot of challenges, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. And though we have the Holy Spirit here now to encourage us and comfort us, he's going to dry all our tears. And he'll do that for us as well. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, how we see your plan, your very heart being worked out in this seventh chapter of, of Revelation. Hard for us to believe, Lord, that In your wisdom and your grace and, and under your hand and control, that even though the world is in total chaos, you're still watching over and protecting people in the midst of it all. And at the same time, too, wel welcoming to heaven all those that have paid the ultimate price. As we read about these martyrs, Lord, people who have been, been murdered, their lives taken away because they love Jesus. Lord, I pray, Father, that their witness would embolden us, that like Paul said, the love of Christ 
The love of Christ in his heart motivated him, moved him to tell people about your love. And yet it cost him his life as well. Lord, by and large, that's probably never going to happen for us. We may lose the friendship of a person, but wouldn't it be worth it for a while if we were to see their eternal life gained? So I pray, Father, you'd give us a holy boldness. Give us a love for people. Lord, if we have Jewish friends or associates or coworkers, Lord, help us to pray for them and to reach out. Lord, uh, they're a son, a daughter of Abraham. Because of, Lord, the Hebrew race, the, the Jewish people, Lord, you've given us a Messiah. And for that, Lord, we're thankful, we're grateful. And Lord, we want to just keep telling people about your saving grace. Lord, there's no other name other than that wonderful name of Jesus Christ that can save his soul. So, Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning. Lord, if there is someone, Lord, in our assembly, they've not made that wonderful, blessed decision, oh, Father, may you help them. May you help them, Lord. And we love you, Lord. Go with us now, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.